You're listening to the Functional Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Patrick Hester and Tracy Townsend. So Tracy, by the time this airs uh, and or is over with, and it was great, uh, Willow will have been started with, uh, I don't know if you remember oh, that. Oh, is that, is that on Prime or what's the deal with that going to be? Disney. It's going to be Disney. Disney. Of course it's Disney. Disney. Yeah. And obviously also the Guardians of the Galaxy holiday special has already happened. So we are, deep, we are deep into December. Mm-hmm. Deep. Indeed. Well, so, I mean, I, one of the things, of course, that's, that's always on my mind this time of year is, um, we're actually recording this as hobo giving is going on upstairs in Shea Townsend. And for those who are, who are unfamiliar, hobo giving is what happens when, uh, American Thanksgiving occurs a couple days on, um, and we invite over all of our various, uh, gaming friends and, and nerd friends and whatnot who, um, either don't have, a convenient family or complicated family situations of various types. And we sort of, you know, open the doors and bring them in and whatnot. Um, and, you know, we spend a lot of time uh, planning out what to get people for the holidays and how to sort of um, be festive and all of that. And uh, because of that, we spend a lot of time thinking about what people like and what people do and, and what's sort of in their wheelhouse, but also trying to find stuff that's new. Um so I guess that is the segue for me into our guest <laughs> for this week. So that we've got Freya Marsk um, on the theme of something new. We don't often have authors on who thread the needle of fantasy and romance the way that you do, Freya. So welcome. It's time for you to educate us. Thank you. I ho- was really hoping you were going to say something about you have pie for me because one <laughs> oh, of the well, I mean, being in Australia is we do not have a holiday that seems predominantly based around food like thanksgiving okay, okay uh, 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 but hold on but hold on but you do have pie sweet pies do exist here but they're not really a capital t thing if somebody in australia says pie they mean a meat pie mm-hmm. yeah yeah but you know obviously there is a lot of cultural spread and we do know about things like apple pie and pumpkin pie they just aren't a really big cultural thing i've been in america mm-hmm. over exactly one thanksgiving Mm-hmm. And it was amazing. Actually, it was over Halloween, and I just ate pumpkin pie nonstop for a month. I was one of those people who just no, it's, it's, it's a, it's a festival like, pumpkin flavored thing. <laughs> it was incredible. <laughs> well, but 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 what about? So hold on, you you, you mentioned a cup, but what, like do you have coconut cream pie, banana cream pie? Do nope. you have apple pie, cherry pie, peanut butter pie? Uh, apple pie and cherry pie probably exist at most bakeries in like little pie forms. Uh, and you can sometimes like a restaurant will have a, a type of fruit pie on their dessert menu. I have but to tell all you, those you're, other you're, cream based pies are not really a thing. You're, you're putting a bullet into like all of my bucket list travel plans for the future. <laughs> <laughs> can you go I, to I, Australia and do without you will pie have to smuggle for, for in so your long. Own pie? Look, I will say all the ingredients I, to make it exists here. I'm sure it's true. you can yeah, find the yeah. pies somewhere. They're just not as much of the cultural zeitgeist. You can bring your I, pie lore with you. I, I, I don't I don't I don't look like him. I don't drive like him. I don't hunt monsters like him, but I do identify with Dean Winchester's love of pie. <laughs> oh look, I mean, I enjoyed the exposure to diner culture through Supernatural, and every time oh they went God. in and had a pie, I did think yes. we could do with more of that here. Yeah, yeah. So, so what you're saying is, uh, uh, like, move to Australia and open a pie shop and see what happens. 
Yeah, I have been to exactly one <laughs> pie shop in in Australia, and it did very well. It had both yeah. the Australian meat pies and it had American style sweet pies available in the same shop. It was called the Pie Tin. I don't know if it still exists. It's in Sydney, yeah, yeah. and that was a wonderful experience. See, so I don't, I don't I feel Tracy. Tracy, I don't. I don't think we do meat pies here much. I mean. Not really. I mean, the closest thing that we do, and it, it does not, it does not resemble what Freya means by meat pie. But I think that the nearest thing we get is, given our proximity to Mexico, like the empanada, like is 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 the cousin of the meat pie, or, or like a um, beer rock. But, yeah, I guess. Yeah, beer rock. So we we do the handheld pies sometimes. Mm-hmm. I mean, a, like a, a Australian meat pie is probably about. Yay big. This is great radio, isn't it? I know, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like she's making a go- gesture that's sort of like a grapefruit hockey puck. Grapefruit size. Yeah, let's say about yeah. grapefruit size. So not really a hand pie in that you I mean you could pick it up in your hand and eat it, but it would be a bit hot and messy. Uh you're meant to sort of have a wrapper around it or just have a well, plate we, with a knife and fork. We never we never talk about food on this podcast. So 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 what I'm hearing <laughs> is it it, it, it it's kind of like a calzone. Mm. Sort of, but it's more pie based in that there's like it's round, there's a base, it's there's round. a lid. Yeah. It's not folded. Yeah, yeah. It's not a folded yeah. pie like a calzone. Mm-mm. Yeah. Australia if you just Google Australian meat pie, you will find Yeah, it's not like a not like a Welsh pasty or, or I, something. I am no. not Googling a I am not gonna Google Australian meat pie for many reasons. <laughs> that doesn't say great <laughs> I mean, things about what Google will think that you want. I, I that's my that's my fear. Yes. Algorithms are curious. Um, but yeah. although, you know, the idea of Australian meat pie and its possible interpretations does bring us back to fantasy romance in a certain <laughs> frame of I mean, Excellent just, segue. Let's go. I, well, you know, yeah, I do I do try. But in, in all seriousness, so I think we need to kind of wind back a little bit here, right? Um, yeah, we, because we you're, you're joining us because this <laughs> the pie tangent's wonderful. Don't get me wrong. Um, although ironically, there is none to be had upstairs because um, our our baker friend brought cookies, uh, which I will I will never complain of. Um, biscuits translating for Freya's home listeners. Um, but in any case. So you're actually joining us for the second book in your trilogy, uh, that the second book is A Restless Truth, and the first was A Marvelous Light. But I think to kind of get with you into your story world, we need to like get to the story world. So set the scene for us. What is the world of the binding, uh, the last binding trilogy? So this is a historical fantasy series. It's not entirely secondary world, and it's set in the English Edwardian era. So I think the cultural touchstones for most people these days for this particular era are Downton Abbey and Mm -hmm. Titanic. So book one is set in 1908 and the second two books are both set in 1909. So that's where we are, historically speaking. Uh, And it's a version of that world where magicians exist, but they keep themselves hidden from non-magical society. And a group of people find themselves mixed up in first uncovering and then fighting a conspiracy to use some magical items to steal power from all British magicians. So it's a fairly familiar fantasy plot. Find the magical MacGuffins, solve some murders, save the world, question mark. Like, you know, it's all about power and responsibility. But I really wanted to embed it in a a real historical setting. So why that particular historical era? I mean, if you're you're choosing uh, in English era of history, there's an embarrassment of them to to, to focus on. What about Hmm. that Edwardian period? So there's a long and intelligent sounding answer, and then there's a short, true answer. 
I'll give Love you the low one first. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So the Edwardian era is a bit of an odd time. Like it's sort of sandwiched between the Victorian era, which most people know more about, even though the Victorian era covers such a long time that it there's a lot that went on in it. But people know the aesthetic of that, really. They think Sherlock Holmes, they think the Industrial Revolution. Uh, and then on the other side, the Edwardian era is World War One, And then after that, you're sort of into war, World War Two. So as an era, it's not particularly long. It's like nine years. Uh, or if you're thinking about just pre-World War One, it's about 12 years. But there is a lot of social change going on in England at that time. Uh, we're starting to see the cracks in the idea of British Empire, uh, you know, the relationship between England and places like Ireland and India are getting very more fraught than usual. Uh, there's starting to be that emergence of a moneyed middle class and so the breakdown of some of the really rigid class structures that have been in England up to that point. Uh, and there's just a lot of interesting stuff going on. And on a much more shallow level, it is an aesthetically lovely period. And when I started researching it for the books, I got extremely into early modernist portraiture, early European modernist art styles, especially the um, decoration art styles. There's a lot in A Marvelous Light about the arts and crafts movement. Mm -hmm. I also kind of stole a couple of bits from the Jürgenstil, which is the sort of German movement and the Glasgow yeah. School, which is what was happening in Scotland. Uh, and so lots of the decoration, you know, <laughs> decoration as much as you can have that in <laughs> books, is very influenced by artists of the time. And one of my main characters in A Marvelous Light is an art enthusiast. So I got to do a little bit of name dropping and have a character who actually noticed what things look like. Most of the characters don't. Most of the characters do not care about the wallpaper in their houses, but Robin really does. Uh, so he was a really fun point of view character to use to really infuse that aesthetic into the book. So the politics, the change, the aesthetics, that was the long answer. The short answer is I wanted to write a, a mystery set on an ocean liner. I always ah. knew that book two, A Restless Truth, was going to be set on one of the transatlantic ocean liners at the same time as the Titanic. Uh, so I could have done A Restless Truth so, sorry, I could have done A Marvelous Light in a vast range of historical time periods. You can have secret magicians pretty much anywhere, anytime. Uh, and the basics of somebody being accidentally named to a position, their predecessors disappeared. You can do that almost anytime. But mm -hmm. you can't do a Titanic-like ocean liner anytime except around the time of the Titanic. So that was what mm -hmm. nailed me down to this particular time period, really. That reminds me of I had a I I, 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 blah, 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 blah. I can't speak. <laughs> I had an idea years ago about a story on the what was it called the Clipper, and um, you can only write that in yeah. a certain time period as well. That was the plane sure. that would go uh, like from the mainland U.S. to Hawaii. Oh, okay. And it was I this love huge a story. plane that has that kind yeah. of specificity. Like there's yeah. a, a book I read recently called All the White Spaces by Ali Wilkes, which is about South Pole, polar exploration just post-World War One, And you can only really set it at that time when those yep. early um, expeditions were going there. And, of course, it's also about the you know aftermath of the First World War. And But it's so specific, even though it's, it's polar horror, but it's also yeah. very specific to that historical time and place. It was great. The other kind of cool thing about the ocean liner as a – so as soon as you mentioned that, my brain started sort of spinning around all of the different um, science fiction and fantasy tropes that are about 
stories that are very situated within a space. Um, like obviously, you know, uh, science fiction of a spacefaring nature has like things like generation ships or, you know, the starship and in a, on a sort of ongoing military envoy mission or all those sorts of things. They create settings where the characters may have um, travel on their minds, but they're also sort of bound within a very limited space with one another. Um, you know, there's in the world of mystery, there's a locked room mystery where the whole kind of plot is controlled and the idea that we know exactly who was here in a certain space in a certain time and none of us are leaving until the thing is done. Dun, dun, what dun. kind of opportunities does the ocean liner create for you in your storytelling that it's not just the aesthetic of it or the, like the uniqueness of the history? You're like, I, I want the ocean liner because it's going to let me do this. You're absolutely right that the locked room mystery aspect was a huge reason of why I wanted to do that. And I think it's why A Restless Truth has a really much more of an Agatha Christie-like feel than mm. A Marvelous Light does. I really wanted to capture that fun essence of a group of people who didn't know each other beforehand have been stuck together in an enclosed space, even though it's an enormous ocean liner, you can't get off it because there's just mm -hmm. ocean uh, and there's a very set time period that you're on that boat. So the crossing takes about six days. And so I knew I had this built in timetable to do the plot in. And the characters are always aware of the fact that, okay, they are stuck on a boat with a murderer, but they also have five or six days in which to solve this mystery and to get this stolen item back before they arrive back in England and everybody disperses. You know, you've got this, built-in time limit on your plot. Yeah. It's you not just it's not just the violence it. of the death, but it's the urgency of the timeline. Yeah, so you've got an urgent timeline, so which means that everybody who is flung together solving this, that sense of urgency driving forward drives intimacy as well. Mm -hmm. And I think there's something that happens on cruises or tours where anything where you've got a group of people who have to be stuck together, you can have the development of friendships or relationships quite fast because it's a weird space. And in the book, they, they use the word liminal quite deliberately because you're not mm -hmm. in one place and you're not quite in another. You are in transition. Uh, and mm -hmm. I wanted to echo that. It's a big theme of the book as well in the character arcs of transitioning from one phase of your life to another and being in an in-between space where some of the rules are lifted mm -hmm. uh, and you can actually start to experiment with who you are and where you are. So that seems like that, I, that idea of experiment, experimentation and self-discovery and sort of pressing of limits also seems like it fits into, um, into fantasy and eroticism and, and the romance angle that plays within your work as well. And I, I mentioned before that we don't often have authors who fit that Venn diagram space of fantasy and romance on our show, but I think it's really important to kind of think about the way that those genres can interact when you're really thoughtful about them, like as a writer, and when you're when you're thinking about what what readers of the one genre and the other want when those things are brought together. So, as as a fantasy writer who is working in a sort of romance frame at the same time, but also a mystery frame, I mean, you got it. You got multiple scoops on the Sunday here. Uh, yep, yep. What's in your What's in, in your three mind? Different mud puddles. Um, <laughs> yeah, how, how do you organize all of this as like a, a set of schemas and priorities? Mm. 
it is a bit tricky sometimes and it's because you really don't want to disappoint expectations when you're working in a genre. So if you say this is a fantasy book, it belongs on the fantasy shelf with all the other fantasy books, then people are going to pick it up with an expectation of certain things. So yes, there is magic in it. You know, there's a plot that does hold together separate from the romance. So we have the clues, the research, the uncovering of secrets and conspiracies. We have magical world building that keeps getting bigger. We have deadly peril. We have magic spells. We have magic items. So it's got all the things that a fantasy book and a fantasy trilogy should have. But because I am quite clearly advertising myself as also a romance writer and I want to be able to market to the romance readership, again, I have to make sure I am meeting expectations in that genre. And romance readers do have very clear expectations. And mostly it is that you get the couple together and that they stay together. Uh, So I am only doing one couple per book. I didn't Mm -hmm. want to try and drag out one couple's romance across three books, which, you know, it can be done. It has been done. But also I wanted to play with an ensemble cast So I didn't want to just be in two people's heads across the entire trilogy. And so Mm -hmm. part of what I'm doing is giving you a single romance per book, but also building up the cast and the ensemble as we go along and balancing the fantasy plot and the romance plots within each book. Writing A Marvelous Light was a really great exercise in teaching myself how to do that uh, because I am a very big outliner. I'm a big planner. And so I had to sit down and go, what are the beats of the romance that I want to fit in this? What are the beats of the fantasy plot? And then how do I weave them together? But I do think they work incredibly well together because you can use something like, oh, we are stuck together investigating a conspiracy. I can't let you go because you have a curse on your arm. You know, I can't let you go because you're the only person that I know who knows about this magical world and can teach me about it. Now we have to go and investigate something. That is a shared project, and a shared project is how you get a romance started. You put two people who maybe wouldn't normally like each other or talk to each other into a shared project and say, go and do stuff so that you can display your competencies to each other (laughs) and start to unwind each other's vulnerabilities, and that's how you build a romance. And then you can throw them into deadly peril and have them coming off the adrenaline of almost being eaten by a hedge maze, and oh my goodness, maybe we should make out. Uh, but on the same, <laughs> as one on the other, yes. of course, of course. Yeah. And on the other hand, you can then have these emotions and the drawing together and the drawing apart and the, do I trust you? Conspiracies are great for, do I trust you? Uh, feeding into the romance, the, sorry, the fantasy plot, because then you've mm-hmm. got people working together or not working together. Are they together? Are they apart? When they're apart, one of them can be endangered. So all of the twos and fro's of these two plots actually work beautifully together. It is just a bit of a headache at the planning stage. It's a good thing you're a planner. Oh, yes. And each book has taken more planning because I have more characters on the page. So I have to think, Mm -hmm. how am I doing the romance? How am I doing the plot? And then how many different people am I juggling, even though I'm only using two people's point of view? So book three was even more planning and even more headache, but... But I think I pulled it off. Well, thank goodness it's a trilogy then. So you know you're you're, you're a free human now, <laughs> freed oh, of your own your own ambitions. Free, free. yeah, yeah. I'm never <laughs> writing again. No, no. I'm now writing more things. So, so if you if you think about it, Tracy, setting everything on a ocean liner for the one book, uh, that's like an isolated city. Mm. Mm-hmm. To your point, you can't leave. 
Yeah. Right? Well, I mean, you 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 could. I wouldn't recommend it. But uh, you're just you're just isolated. So you're also doing all that world building, right? I mean, you you're you're yeah. basically building up a a city from sea level up. Yeah. But also, I, I mean, it's historical. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I was on, but I was research. Told, you should have a map, and I said, I am not having a map of this ship. Uh, and the reason they said that was because more of the less of the sort of fantasy city map and more of the Agatha Christie map. You know, you think, okay, yeah. everything happened in the manor house. You have to show where the butler's pantry is and the library is, and how did people get yep. from this room to this room, and could they have heard the gunshot from here? Uh, and my first draft of a restless truth. I had a very, very vague idea of where things were, but I mostly just hand-waved it. And one of my major revision notes was, because you are doing this as a murder mystery, your readers have to have an idea of where things are. Like You need to have a much clearer sense of the space, and you have to have a chapter where you lay that out for them. Like, this is on this deck. This is on this deck. This is how you get from this deck to this deck. And especially, this is where first-class passengers can go. This is where they can't go. Yeah. Because the dumb waiter that someone could leap into. Exactly. And I sat down and made a very loose map for myself based on blueprints of the Titanic because there's a lot of historical detail out there about the Titanic because of what happened to it. Mm -hmm. And I was designing uh, an ocean liner that was not quite the Titanic. It's sort of in size a bit smaller, uh, more similar to some of the other White Star line ocean liners. And so I didn't have a very, very detailed map not detailed to the point that I was going to be prepared to put it into the book, uh, but at least I had a, a clearer sense of it. So it was like building a city. I had to know who lives where and what social events happen where. And then once I had that, I actually had a bit more freedom in terms of settings because if you're writing something entirely set on a boat, you have to seize at any setting that is not just, and now we're back in a cabin and now we're on the deck. <laughs> and as somebody yeah. who naturally writes a great deal of scenes of people sitting around discussing things in small rooms with drinks. <laughs> I had yeah. to force myself to get out of the cabin uh, and use the whole ship, uh, which, did, which did end up, I think, with some of the more fun scenes. Yeah. Let's go straight the Lido deck. <laughs> <laughs> I, did, I did similar research years ago, but for a role-playing game that I was, that was uh, a, a campaign that I was basically creating for uh, Savage Worlds, I, I wanted to set an ocean liner in space but I wanted it to be a traveling zoo. Mm. So I did the same thing you did. I went looking for blueprints and plans of, of like old ocean liner ships. And then I just tried to scale it up for this game. Mm -hmm. And then mm -hmm. the, the difference between trying to do a campaign for a game and trying to write a story is that as soon as I put the players in the game, they blew it all the fuck up and I was pissed. <laughs> Like yeah. just, all my plans went down the toilet immediately. All the stuff you yeah. don't want to explore. Whereas at least with characters, I can say nobody gets to explore that part. <laughs> no, we're going over here. Yeah. We're staying. Mom says no. I know. Yeah. It. Yeah. Exactly. yeah. That's funny though, because there is a menagerie in a restless truth. Oh, nice. Well. Yep, a traveling seems, menagerie. That would seem like a miserable project to keep to keep animals in. I mean, I, that, that particular kind of confinement in that particular sort of space. Um, oh, yeah. Then they're, they're not yeah. happy. Oh, and, Lord. of course, because it like it's a very Chekhov's menagerie, you have to introduce a menagerie and then you have to use your menagerie in the plot. So, Right. Yeah. Yeah. There has to be a reason that we've got a chimpanzee over here. And, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. Well, wasn't it was, – I mean, did they actually do that on Ocean Liners or is that something you invented? Oh, Probably. 
Like there was, it was definitely <laughs> one of those things where millionaires had private menageries, like private zoos. Okay. And so mm-hmm. I just invented an American millionaire who's moving to the UK and is just like, okay, I'm taking my menagerie with me. Yes. Interesting. Because I, I it, yeah, as soon as you mentioned that, I thought to myself, well, maybe they did that as, as like entertainment for the passengers. It's like, oh, no, no, it's definitely not the designed as entertainment for the passengers. But, you know, that also might have happened. They had some odd ideas yeah. about how to keep people entertained on boats. Yeah, yeah. No, I have, I have an aunt um, who once or twice a year will, will take a, a cruise as one of her pr- particular favorite types of vacations. And I've never done a cruise before, but she always ends up on those sort of like absolutely gigantic, really floating city things um, where there's like 12 decks deep and it's got like a water park on the topmost part with, you know, big spiral slide. And obviously these are technologies that are well out of the way of the particular period that you're imagining, you know, fantasy notwithstanding. Um, But one imagines that, you know, it's that that's really just like, building to the nth degree on the kind of excess that for at least a certain type of passenger that ocean liner experience could offer. Um, yeah. Mm, yeah. It's a very odd method of travel because especially if you're thinking about things like the Titanic, it was, yes, you are getting from point A to point B, but you're paying, especially the first class passengers, it is so expensive because it is about the luxury and the Titanic was sold that way. It was, this is the most luxurious ship we've ever had. And so mm-hmm. it's about your dining in these high-class restaurants. Everybody is dressing fully for dinner. Everything is beautiful. We have these Turkish baths. We have a gymnasium. We have a swimming pool. It had all this on the Titanic. Mm-hmm. And it was all about being seen in the right kind of society. And as long as you could buy into it, you could be seen there, even though there were these obviously tensions of new money versus old class going on. Yeah. I mean, those sorts of social tensions must be really wonderful for you to sort of imagine into the setting of uh, Restless Truth and to sort of use in your own way for your, and and they feed very well, I think, into a sort of romance frame uh, because that the class consciousness creates a whole sort of layer of tension and a whole layer of idea of who one should associate with and who one should not. And to uh, to whom one is attracted and all that sort of business. Um, I can't help but wonder, though. I, I think one of the things that makes people who aren't familiar with what fantasy romance really is or can do um, avoid it is or or misunderstand it is that they have some fundamental misapprehensions about what to expect when they open that book. What do you think are are some of the um, assumptions that people bring to fantasy romance that maybe aren't helpful or that can get in the way of them enjoying the text. I never quite know how to answer questions like this because it's saying put yourself <laughs> in the brain of somebody who comes true, who doesn't think like you. Different, yeah. Yeah. Completely different right. place than me. Fair. And I suppose I surround myself with people who also enjoy the same kinds of books and write the same kinds of books. Uh, and so far nobody has come up to me in person or on Twitter or anywhere and said, mm-hmm. here's why I don't like what you do which is great. I'm sure it's going to happen at some point, but so far I've been quite lucky. Um, Look, I suppose as somebody who writes what's called high heat romance, so let's talk about the sex scenes. And I think some people probably think, I don't really want to read a book that has sex scenes in it. And honestly, you don't have to, if you don't, if you think I don't like sex scenes, my books are not for you. Great. Um, Which I think sex scenes on the page have existed in fantasy as a genre for a while. Mm -hmm. But when I was, 
growing up and reading a lot of high fantasy, like, you know, all those really traditional high fantasies. I read pretty much everything in my library. Depressingly, the explicit sex seemed saved for the really dark rapey scenes. Like that was the place where you could actually get explicit. And it was seen as because it was like, this is where it's worth going into detail. Mm. Nothing that's like happy or joyful, but let's really just dig into the suffering in this scene Mm. with the same kind of level of detail that you'd have descriptions of people getting their arms chopped off or being magically tortured. And there was only because, a because, because that's, because that's how the, that's how the female character gets her power. Yeah. Once she's raped, she gets her power. That's the trope. Yeah. That's an awful trope. It's terrible. Yeah. So it was not a great genre in which to be a female character, Mm -hmm. Uh, but you know, I was reading it because I wanted to read fantasy. There were only a handful of writers and I'm trying to think probably Anne McCaffrey and Sarah Douglas, who's an Australian writer that I don't know how much international fame. I read Sarah Douglas. Yep. Who, and she was obviously, she was quite a dark, from the first off was very creepy, but she was actually interested in not only the dark aspects, but also in joyful romantic sex. And Anne McCaffrey was to a certain extent as well. Uh, And I had to sort of grow up into my twenties and discover genre romance to find who are the experts doing sex on the page in published fiction. So fan fiction is another story completely. Oh yeah. That's, you know, I'd been reading and writing fan fiction for ages and that there's a lot of sex happening there. Uh, But when it comes to published books on the page, explicit sex, romance was where it was mostly happening. And so I, as somebody who's writing with a foot in all the mud puddles, very deliberately wanted the sex to be an aspect of romance that I put into my books because I think a good sex scene can be like a really good fight scene or a really dramatic argument. Like it, it's somewhere where you can do so much pushing of character. You can do great emotion. You can just play. And also they're just fun. Like I, I enjoy books that have sex scenes in them. I enjoy writing them. And I think it is a little bit of a deliberate pushing at the boundaries of that genre and saying, this is something that you can enjoy as well. Yeah. Yeah. So even with all the fancy trappings around it. I was just going to say, I've, I've always, I've always said that Gail Carriger tricked me into reading a romance novel by uh, selling me on the humor and the vampires and the Mm -hmm. werewolves. Yeah. And I think that's very funny. Possible misconceptions that you're just like, Oh, romance is one thing. Yeah. And I was tricked into reading a romance novel because there was humor in it, as if romance yeah. novels can't be funny or like they can't have vampires in them, where <laughs> so many of them do. Um, look, and I think it's just one of those things that those of us in capital G genre are used to being looked down upon by the literary establishment and feeling defensive about our own genre and our own books and the joy that we find in it. And there is still a tendency for science fiction and fantasy to go, well, at least we're not romance. You know, we're not the silly girls with their shameful, smutty scenes. You know, we are at least a bit cooler than that or more legitimate than that. There's this sense that once you start putting sex into something, it becomes illegitimate and shameful and not a real book. And I, I don't think, think it those particularly... are the kind of boundaries that I'm used to, that I'm interested in breaking down. Yeah. No, I don't think it particularly reflects well upon genre readers, though, who are largely okay with that sort of darker um, – you know, pain-oriented and suffering-oriented sexual experience that you described earlier, Freya, and and can read that and say, well, you know, this is about moving the plot, or like this is important for character, or this is important for whatever reason, insert words here, Um, but then encounter 
an interaction between characters who are enjoying themselves and each other and um, and expressing feelings and being in love and reading a scene where that happens and going, no, 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 oh, well, no. I feel they, uncomfortable they'll, they'll... here. This is the place where I'm uncomfortable. Like that, but they'll that, also... But they'll also lose their shit over people eating real food around a table in space. It's like, no, you you have to, you have to hydrate. You can't have real food. You have to, it's got to be space food. You can't have blue jeans in space. It's got to be a synthetic fabric. You can't have this. You can't, it's just people shitting on other people's joy. Yeah. Yeah. I am very much of the, (laughs) you do what you want school of writing speculative fiction. You know, yeah, I'm writing historical I probably smush around a few historical facts. I have a few anachronisms in there. That's okay. You know, it serves, it yeah, makes yeah. it for a better book. You know, I love, I love space opera, but also I'm not at all interested in whether or not this space opera is scientifically viable. That is not the yeah, point. Yeah, me either. <laughs> the, the point is let's have fun in space. <laughs> yeah. Don't give me math. Don't give me, <laughs> don't give me math homework in my fiction. Come on. I don't yeah, want to, look, I don't know, want to have to speculative, do speculative fiction as a genre is a huge umbrella. There is room for the people who yeah. enjoy the math and who really want to know how the light speed drive works. That's fine. And then there's yeah. room for the people who just want one one line that just said, and then we went to warp speed and then we were at the next place. You know? Yeah. Yeah. As one give me, does. give me, give me my space wizards with their, with their uh, lightsabers. Exactly. You, you don't need mm-hmm. to know the maths of how a, light, a lightsaber works. It's a cool sword that glows. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. And when you do find out how it works, midichlorians, that sucks. And you're like, don't exactly. tell me that. Yeah. Take that back. <laughs> yeah. Don't tell me that anymore. I don't want your space mitochondria. Um, well, I think back, I think the, the perfect theme right now, the perfect segue we has that idea of like not, not shitting on the joy. And so, and the opposite of not shitting on the joy, of course, is, is to enjoy things together. So picks of the week, we feeling it? I'm feeling picks of the week. Let's do it. Picks of the week. All right. Patrick, so yes. can you start us off? Wednesday's child was full of woe. I am picking Wednesday from Netflix uh, from Tim Burton, the mind of Tim mm-hmm. Burton, and the acting chops of Jenna Ortega, who mm-hmm. I have absolutely no idea where she came from. I'm sure she's done a billion other things that I've never seen, but she's absolutely adorable and wonderful as Wednesday. And it's a great take on the character. The show is really fun. Uh, I just loved it. I, and it's only eight episodes. So I was able to watch it in just a couple of days, a couple of sittings. And uh, it's basically the the story of a teenage Wednesday Adams who uh, <laughs> gets expelled from one too many schools for being herself and get sent to the one school that is, is designed to deal with outcasts, the werewolves and the vampires and the uh, Gorgons and, and anything else you can think of. And it's called Nevermore Academy. And it's, I think it's, it was founded uh couple hundred years ago or something and so she's going to nevermore and then stuff just starts happening and i i just loved it i thought it was a great show eight episodes netflix go check it out awesome (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. Freya, how about you? Well, I was considering Andor, but we mentioned it at the beginning, and I think we'll just assume blanket statement, everybody should watch Andor. Yes. I'm going to go with the joy of rereading. So as somebody who obviously, you know, is working in the industry and is also an active nerd who wants to read everything and wants to read all the romance and all the science fiction and all the fantasy and is just getting into horror as well, but really likes mysteries. I always have something new to read and it might be that I've been sent it to blurb or it's just the new hot thing in the genre. Uh, But sometimes I forget that I get the most joy out of reading things that I have read and loved before. And so my TBR has been entirely upended this week by me starting a reread of the Volkhozigan series by Thomas <gasps> McMaster Bujold. Speaking of space opera that does not give a shit about maths, but really likes yeah. people having conversations. Shards of honor. <laughs> yes. So I have, yeah, I'd already barreled my way through the Cordelia books and I am now mm. embroiled in the early career of miles again. And mm. I had deliberately left, I got a couple of unread Volkhozigan books at the very end of the series that I haven't read yet in that sort of you always want to leave yourself a morsel on the plate kind of way but I think this is going to be the reread where I go through all the books that I have loved before and then I finally read the two that I haven't read yet and it's just been wonderful like I'm trying to shed the guilt of oh you should be reading these four other things you should be reading these things you were blurbing you should be reading this stack that's been on your bedside table for months and months and months and And you're reading period and that I'm reading period and I have I'm remembering that the reason to read is because you love it. And I'm getting so much joy out of revisiting these and remembering what a master of the craft Lois McMaster Bujol is and how much of a genre straddler she was in her own time and now. So that is my joy. Rereading, period, but especially rereading the Volkhozigan series. The, awesome. One of the things that I, that I love about that series is that there are multiple ways to read it as well. Like, because yeah. people always ask, "What should I read these in order? Like, what order should I read them in?" And the, in in and she actually has different guides. Like, if you want mm-hmm. this, read it this way. If you want this, read it this way. If you want that, read it that way. And and so there's different guides to it. I will throw it out that the audiobooks are wonderful. Yes, I can't remember who did the audiobooks, who the the, the narration was, but uh, whoever did it did a really good job. Mm, and it's one of those series so those where if I wanted there. to get somebody into it, it's like the Discworld. If, so if I wanted to get somebody yeah. into it, I'd say, what do you like? Tell me about something else you've enjoyed, and I'll tell you yep. what your entrance point should be. And triage it, yeah, you really do. Yeah, and then I can say, oh, you like this kind of book. Well, maybe you should go with this one first. So if I'm trying to get mm-hmm. a romance reader into it, then obviously I'd say read Komar followed by a civil campaign. And if I'm going to get somebody who's into military sci-fi into it, I'd say read Warrior's Apprentice. But, you know, in my reread, I'm just going chronological, start to finish. Yeah. yeah. Nice. Awesome. Well, my my pick of the week is also a reread, uh, although my reason for coming to it is is different than yours, Freya. Um, so listeners, now I've got, I've got my kids, Corwin and Deirdre, um, and – I have this ongoing thing with Deirdre where I recommend her things and she's like, no, no, I'm not going to do the thing. Um, and then eventually something happens and it breaks her down and she starts reading the thing, watching the thing, doing the thing that I recommended to her. And I have, I am batting a thousand with this kid. I have never been wrong once in, in suggesting like, I really think you would like X. And the thing that I slid her way recently saying, I really think you would like this uh, was Jeff Smith's bone. 
Uh, and for those of you who aren't familiar, uh, the Bone Saga, and I'm I, leaning hard into the idea of saga here. Um, <laughs> the Bone Saga is this truly enormous, epic uh, series of graphic novels. Um, I believe it's nine volumes in total to comprise its totality. It's around 2,000 pages or so gathered as a single document. Um, it was originally published in black and white, and that was deliberate. Uh, Jeff Smith both wrote, wrote the story and inked all of it. Um, but it has since been re-released in a colorized version that also executed by Jeff Smith. So um, it's actually – I've had the uh, black and white compendium for years now, and uh, that was the way that my son read it back in the day. Um, but my daughter – took one look at this just like absolute doorstopper of a book and was like, nope, um, when she saw how gigantic <laughs> it was. And so uh, I, I tricked her because I went to the local library and I grabbed the first few volumes because the, the colorized are done in individual volumes. And so I grabbed a few of them and so, oh, now suddenly this is small and also shiny and colorful. And the next thing you know, she's curled up on the couch reading it. And the trick of the Bone series is in the first say two volumes, you think you're reading a kind of upper end, middle grade, adorable fantasy, um, sort of picaresque. And then all of a sudden it gets very dark and like, there's a lot of lore and it gets very adult and, uh, and, and very complex and it sneaks up on you. Um, not in a kind of this this series jump the shark kind of way, but in a sense of like it was it, once you go back and reread it, which is what I'm doing now with Deirdre, you realize it was always there. Um, but it was just very quietly lurking in the background of what seemed like, um, you know, very like Disney Channel kind of opening material there. Um, and the main characters uh, who we meet in it are Bones. Um you might say to yourself, what the hell do you mean, Tracy? They're bones. Uh, I mean that they are bones. They are a type of small, three-foot-tall creatures that are called bones that come from Boneville. They look kind of like femurs, but with arms and legs. Um, and they're adorable. And and you think, <laughs> again, that this is just some weird-ass story about sentient bones wandering around in a fantasy landscape and then holy shit. Um, so I highly recommend, if you've never checked out Jeff Smith's Bone before, um, that you do. So it's my reread right now and my pick of the so, week. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw one more thing that, out there that I think uh, Freya might enjoy it just as far as connecting things together. Do you remember Robotech? I know, Tracy, you remember Robotech? Oh, yeah, yeah. Robotech was essentially a, a space opera science fiction romance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Because you, you had, the, you had the, the three characters that were kind of in this uh, back and forth, will they, won't they, who, who will end up with who kind of thing. Because you had the Rick love triangle. Hunter. Yeah. yeah. You had Rick Hunter, you had Lynn Min May, and you had Lisa Hayes. And they were kind of going back and forth. And this is, a, this is an animation. This is anime. And, uh, you know, based on a lot of different things from Japan and it, it, it ran its course. And then because there was all these rights issues, they never were able to do more animation, but they did comic books. And so you just reminded me of this, uh, Michelle over at beyond the trope mm -hmm. is also an October baby. Like we are. Mm -hmm. And and so when I found out that and the fact that she was a fan of the original Robotech, uh, I went out and I got her the 
two volumes of Robotech 2, The Sentinels. Oh, cool. I don't even know if any of our listeners know that this exists, but uh, they continued the story of Rick Hunter and Lisa Hayes uh, after the, the, the Robotech, the first Macross saga. And those are also in black and white uh, on purpose. And so yeah, those are out yeah. there. And I, and I dropped those off for, uh, for Michelle over at Giles' house uh, and she squeed ridiculously. So again, fans, well like if you're, if you're into that, uh, if you liked mm-hmm. Robotech, there is that sequel that's out there. And again, it's, it's the romance of, of Rick Hunter and, and Lisa Hayes continued. So, and it's space opera and it's, it's far away from earth at that point. So yeah, good stuff. Nice. All right. Well, we, we've been on a heck of a journey here with you um, on, on this um, white star liner across the seas <laughs> <laughs> through the Edwardian fantasy world of the last binding trilogy. Freya, where can people find you and your super cool books, including the third one that you have finished slaving over at long last? So nobody can find the third one yet, but it yet. is coming out in about a year's time. So it will be out in November of 2023. In the meantime, I am most active on capital letters, Elon Musk's Twitter, unfortunately, (laughs) Uh, and we'll be sticking around on that until it dies. Uh, I also have a website, freyamask.com, and there you can sign up for my newsletter, which I have been told I need to actually start having a newsletter. Uh, I probably will keep it very updates only, uh, and it will become more active middle of next year once we start gearing up for the release of book three. But in the meantime, you can obviously find bio links for the first two books there as well. Fantastic. Edward was the king that like abdicated, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Can't remember. Like he was in love with somebody and he wanted to, Mm -hmm. he couldn't be king and. Oh, this is a different Edward. Oh, okay. Different. Different. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. That that was correct. That was the, the, the abdication. Um, was mm-hmm. the one was sort of more around World War Two, right? ah, okay. thus leading to Elizabeth II. The Edwardian era is the one that's Edward the Seventh, um, and basically it's just like because he was the eldest child of Queen Victoria, who lived for a very long time. By the time he ascended the throne, you know he was not young himself, and he only lived uh, for another nine years. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay, yeah. gotcha. Now I'm caught up. Now I can now I can start like now you can now know what's going on now I know and knowing is half the battle. There have been a lot of Edwards, like you know the one who abdicated. I think was Edward the Eighth. Like there's a lot of them. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, very cool. Uh, this was this was a lot of fun. Thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. This was lovely. Well, here it is, the bumper. Wow, it's so spacious here. <laughs> yep. You can fit 60 whole seconds of additional information, advertisement, and suggestions in this baby. Advertisement? Sure. Like our friends over at Beyond the Trope, which is perfect for people who like podcasts like ours with guests from the world of books, comics, gaming, and more. They have episodes every Tuesday, by the way. Huh. Patrick, are you just promoting Beyond the Trope out of fear and cowardice because of that time they attempted a coup of our podcast, powered by their insatiable lust for dominance? You mean our episode 538? No. Of course not. It's... Actually, it's definitely that. 
oh, it's, it's, I feel you, brother. I live in fear as well. You know, if bumpers are good for additional information, this might be a good space for reminding our listeners that if they become supporting members of Worldcon, they can both nominate and vote for books, movies, television shows, and podcasts to win the Hugo Award in 2023. Yeah, it's a great way to contribute to the SF community and honor creators you like, maybe even the functional nerds, by nominating them for categories like Best Fancast. For example, in theory, you know, we could tell folks that interested listeners can go to the Chengdu Worldcon Facebook page for more information or oh, um, straight to en.chengduworldcon.com to learn more. Do you think we could do that? I think we just did. Oh, yeah, you're right. Pumpers are really cool. I should stop by more often. Mr. Carpiers, you got it right. How about that? Yeah. You can call me Cannoli Joe. If you've if you've never listened to the podcast, there there's there's two different styles here. There's there's Tracy who does prep work and comes up with some very thoughtful questions, and then oh squirrel! Oh, for God's sake, Patrick Louise! <laughs> Are you okay with me recording you today for the purposes of this podcast? <laughs> okay, that's probably a good enough signal. <laughs> when someone comes up to me and says, "Hey, I really love what you do," I'm like. I'm sorry, do you know who I, like, I think you have me confused with someone else. The whiz bang and the gosh wow and the sense of wonder stuff. My favorite thing about time travel is I actually had a time travel joke for you guys, but you didn't like it. I'm so excited.